The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. So we're finishing up Hebrews chapter 4, and, and it's kind of this three-week mini-series that we've, we've, we've coined, Enter and Rest, because, well, several times throughout Hebrews 4, the author, whoever the author is, keeps saying this thing of enter and rest. The writer has been comparing the current decision that these, the, the original readers have of, of uh, trusting in Jesus or not with the decision that their forefathers had 1,400 years before to trust in God's promise or not. The promise then was about entering into the promised land. Well, the forefathers chose to not trust in God's promise and remain in unbelief, and so they were not granted rest in the promised land. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, we have a much better rest now in a much better place, not in a land, but in a person of Jesus. And he's begging them, saying, please look to your forefathers and the poor decision that they made and realize you must turn from your unbelief and believe in Jesus. In fact, this rest in Jesus is so good that everyone who enters will is able to rest from all of their work of trying to create their own cleanness, their own forgiveness, able to rest from trying to create their own righteousness, their own closeness with God. To the people who this was originally written to, remember they were Jews. And I know that most of us, maybe not any of us, I don't know, are Jewish by, by birth. But we still struggle with this same religious thinking that we can in some sort of way create our own cleanness and create our own closeness with God. We think that we create it by doing good. We think that we lose closeness by doing bad. Many of us at least will say, well, look, God doesn't turn his back on me when I do bad, but I drift away from him when I do bad. Well, listen, that's a thinking Kind of like Santa. We've got Santa coming in, right? He's got his list. He's checking it twice. Going to find out who's naughty or nice, right? That might work well when it comes to trying to modify the behavior of children in order to get them to do better and, you know, and, and, and be more obedient or whatever. But let's really step back and think, is that the truth of the gospel? Is that the truth of the gospel? Are we closer to God by doing good and further from him by doing bad? In other words, are my behaviors stronger, more potent than the very blood of Jesus? Seems to me that we're inundated with this type of teaching in our culture, that we get closer to God based on our efforts. But Hebrews 4, in this three-week miniseries that we've been going through, in my opinion, is saying something like this. No, 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 no. No, that's not the way it works. So we're going to finish up these last three verses. We're going to look at three verses. We'll probably be done really quick today uh, to see how this whole thing kind of wraps up. So we're going to read a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit, and we're going to wrap up with a journey marker. If you're new, a journey marker is just, let's put all this into a single thought so we can kind of dwell on it throughout the course of the week. Well, starting in verse uh, 14, therefore, the writer says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, which we just sang about with Craig. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, uh, I think that uh, this is going to be a little bit easier if we actually work backwards in reverse through this text to see what in the world he's saying. So let's start with this part that says, let us hold fast our confession. Well, in case you didn't know, the word confession, it just simply means, it literally is two uh, Greek words, a prefix and then the main word, that says, that means to say the same thing, to speak the same thing. Confession just means to agree. It means to agree. So if two people are saying the same thing, they're in what? They're in agreement. They're confessing with each other. A lot of times we think of confession that only has to do with something regarding sin or whatever, but we can confess, we can agree that God's good. That's, an, that's a confession, okay? So this, this idea of confession, he says, let's hold fast to our confession. Now, if you're like me, I, I want to know, okay, what's this confession? What are they confessing? What are they agreeing? What is, what is the writer of Hebrews saying? We must hold these things in absolute agreement. Okay, now this is where I think it's helpful to go backwards, Let's look at the first part of the verse. He says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Those are three very distinct statements that the writer of Hebrews is saying, we must hold these things in agreement, that Jesus is the great high priest, that he passed through the heavens, and that he is the Son of God of God. We must hold these in agreement. Well, what I want us to do real quickly is just to look at these three statements real fast. First of all, the Jews holding or reading this letter in the first century, they held fast to the fact that somebody else was uh, the priest, the high priest. In fact, they held fast to the old covenant system of priesthood, which was from the lineage of a man named Levi. And I know we don't really want to get into all the weeds here, but Levi was one of the 12 tribes. And the, the law, the Old Testament law said only people who were descendants of Levi were able to be priests. That's, that's why it's called, you might have heard this term before, the, the Levitical uh, priesthood. In fact, the book of Leviticus, it's all about the rules around this thing. Okay, so the, the only people who were qualified according to the law of Moses to be priests, including high priests, were the descendants of Levi. No matter how good you were, Right? No matter how fancy you dressed, if you were not a Levite, you were not qualified to be a priest. Now let's understand this. Uh, Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. Somebody tell me, tell us all, what tribe is Jesus from? Judah. You get a star, whoever said that. Good job. From the tribe of Judah. You remember stars, remember? All right, okay. Judah is known more for his kingly line. David. He is from the tribe of Judah. Uh, Solomon and all their descendants, that's the tribe of Judah. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. No descendant of Judah could be priest. Why? Because the priest, according to the law, had to be from the tribe of Levi. Okay, we're picking up on this. You had to be a Levite. Now listen to this. In order to hold fast to Jesus being the high priest, you had to turn loose. You had to let go the law of Moses. Now this was unthinkable to the religious Jew of their day. Their entire hope of trying to fulfill the requirement of the law, it was what their whole life was about. To them, gaining forgiveness and righteousness was found in this thing of the Mosaic law. Now imagine somebody telling you that you must loose your grip. You've got to let go, 
speaking of frozen, uh, you had to let it go, uh, the, the, the law, and hold fast to a whole new thing, a whole new person, Jesus. Imagine that. You've got to let go of everything you've been taught and hold on to something brand new in your mind. Many people walked away from the gospel at this point. They couldn't imagine forgiveness and righteousness as a free gift. Do you remember what Paul did to the early Christians who embraced this truth that Jesus was the new high priest? What did Paul do before he was born again? He arrested, he killed people who held on to this truth. He killed them. He killed people who believed, who held on to the truth that Jesus was greater than Levi. So this is big. I know it's not big for us Americans 2,000 years later, but let's try to embrace what they're being told to agree. They're being told to agree that we must hold on to Jesus and turn loose everything that we ever held dear regarding to the Mosaic law as our means of gaining forgiveness and righteousness. So we have a great high priest. The second thing he said is who passed through the heavens. Again, for us 2,000 years later, this, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like, what is this all about? Well, many of us have probably heard of the, the Jewish temple. Okay, we've probably heard of this, this building. Well, the Jewish temple was much more than just some building where Jews came and hung out, okay? It was a picture. It was a symbol of access to heaven itself where God lived. You see, in the temple, it, there was a room in the center where only the high priest of Israel could enter one time a year on this day called Yom Kippur, where he offered sacrifices for the sins of the people. This most inner room of the temple is called the Holy of Holies. We've probably heard this term before, the Holy of Holies. It's where the very presence of God dwelt. It was, think of it as a, as a portal, as a, as a place where the kingdom of heaven and the, and the broken, sinful kingdom of this dark world came together. And it was separated between the, the, the kingdom of heaven, this, this heaven on earth, this holy of holies where God dwelt on earth. It was separated from the wickedness of humanity by a thick, heavy curtain. Entering into this room was entering into heaven where the presence of God actually dwelt on earth. It was separated, like I said, by this thick curtain. And before the high priest could enter in to this most holy place, this holy of holies, and go through this curtain, he had to make atonement for his own sins. In a very real sense, the nation of Israel was only as holy as their high priest was holy. What I mean is, if the high priest entered into this holy of holies to make sacrifice for the sins of the people, if he had even one sin remaining on his account, his offering for the people would not work. Talk about anxiety right? Pressure. Talk about the opposite of resting. <laughs> your, your whole forgiveness as a nation is contingent upon someone who's just as human as you, just as sinful as you, just as you are in every way except for he happens to be from a different tribe. He's got issues just like you've got issues. Your confidence in his ability to make atonement for your sin at best is mixed. Now look again at what Hebrews says. Hebrews says, therefore, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Hebrews is calling these Jews to agree 
that Jesus is the high priest and he's the one who has passed through. Now get this. Every time a high priest on this Yom Kippur passed through the various stations of the temple, including the altar, he would then go and enter into the Holy of Holies, this, this heaven on earth to gain forgiveness for the people. Every time that happened. So Hebrews is saying that Jesus has done this very thing. Not just the shadow. Jesus didn't do that in the, in the building, but he did that in the reality. He passed through earth, the, the people of earth, the sins of the people of earth, Jew and Gentile, and came to the altar, the very cross, and he bore the sins, the reproach of mankind, and he entered into heaven, having completed his work. Jesus actually passed through the real heavens, having removed the sin of the world by his one single sacrifice. This is why Paul and the other Pharisees killed early Christians. Hebrews is saying that this temple system, even the high priest itself, were only pictures. They were shadows. They were types of the real true high priest who was to come and now has come, and listen, has come and opened. Let's get that imagery. He's actually opened the door to heaven. Hebrews is saying we must agree that Jesus has passed through, opening this door to heaven. Do you remember what tore the very moment Jesus died? That heavy, thick curtain. It tore from the top to the bottom, showing that Jesus and his death actually worked. The sin of the world has been removed, and now there's access. There's an open door to heaven for all those who would trust in Jesus. This is scandalous to the Jew. This is scandalous to the religious, whether Jew or not. And Hebrews is saying, agree with this. Jesus, he is our real eternal high priest. He has successfully entered heaven, and we who believe in him, guess what? We enter with him. This is awesome. I mean, this is so cool. But to hold fast of this truth, they had to let go of the earthly system, including the entire temple practices. The temple was still in operation when this letter was written. This letter was written, I think, in the 60s, early 60s. The temple wasn't destroyed until 70 AD. So this wasn't destroyed yet. So apparently someone, after Jesus died and the veil was torn, apparently someone got out some Velcro and they fixed the uh, curtain real quick so they could continue doing what they had been doing for, gosh, hundreds and hundreds of years. And by fixing the curtain, the Jews were saying, we choose not to hold fast to Jesus. We choose instead to hold fast to our own system of creating our own cleanness and our own forgiveness, our own closeness with God. And so the Jews reading this letter had a choice to make. Either let go of everything they thought and hold tight to Jesus and Jesus alone, or continue holding on to the shadow which with, which, with which they were very, very familiar. So he's saying, agree that we have a great high priest, and, and to agree with that, you've got to let go of the priesthood of Levi. Therefore, you've got to let go of the entire Mosaic law. We've got to agree that this high priest has actually entered heaven He's actually passed through the real heaven. Not just the shadow on earth, but the real deal. And the third thing that this confession, this agreement is about is that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, to us, 
2,000 years later, this might not sound like that big a deal. We've been hearing this our whole lives. But put yourself in the shoes of people who, this is blasphemous to the Jew, to the religious. Remember, this is really the linchpin of what uh, caused Jesus, what led to Jesus's conviction in the Jewish court. They asked him, are you the son, this is in Mark, are you the son of the blessed one? They didn't even want to say God. Are you the son of the blessed one? And the response was, I am. And then he says, and you'll see it, (laughs) which is really cool. Uh, We don't have time to get into that. Uh, He says, I am. And at that, they tore the clothes. They started screaming blasphemy. We don't need any more witnesses. And they condemned him. Uh, Well, they they tried to condemn him to death. They, of course, had to hand him over the Jews to be condemned. I mean, the Gentiles, the Romans, to be condemned to death. But their whole anger was that Jesus was claiming to be one with God. To be one with God. And Hebrews is saying that you, you, you don't only, only have to, like, um, believe. You don't only have to uh, uh, catch this. You know, Hebrews isn't just claiming that Jesus is God. Hebrews is saying that you must agree that Jesus is God in order to enter in. You must agree in order to have this rest, in order to enter into the heavens with him. Again, this is scandalous. This is blasphemous to their religious system. But nevertheless, the plea of Hebrews remains. The plea of Hebrews is this. We must hold fast to this agreement that Jesus is our high priest, which means we're done with the law of Moses, of trying to create our own cleanness, of trying to create our own closeness with God. We we agree that Jesus has passed through the heavens and he's there calling us to himself. Our hope for heaven is in him and him alone and not in this law, not in our doing. And then lastly, that Jesus is, in fact, God. He is one with God. We must agree, Hebrews says, and hold fast to this truth. Do you see how life-changing this was for the first century readers? See how life-changing this was? I mean, when they got to this point, I, uh, total speculation, but, but I guarantee that some of the people were like, whoa, 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 okay, whoa, okay. Uh, some of that other stuff was kind of cool, but look, we got to agree with what? Look, I, I'm out, I'm out. I'm sure, speculation, I'm sure. While others pr- perhaps said, well, wait, just hold on a second, don't leave, don't walk out. I know this sounds crazy, but, but let's keep reading. This sounds, this sounds interesting, this sounds, there's something strange, something unique here. Well, Let's keep reading as well. Let's go to verse 15. And he says, for, now remember, every time you have the word for, that's going to explain something that has happened, okay? For we do not have a high priest who cannot, uh, who cannot uh, sympathize with our weaknesses, okay? So, so he's explaining how Jesus can be our great high priest. He's explaining how he can enter heaven. He's explaining how Jesus can be, in fact, God. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way we are, now look at this, yet without sin, Yet without sin. I mean, look, we cannot overemphasize what Hebrews is saying here. Hebrews is declaring that Jesus, though tempted, though 100% human, though hurt and afflicted like we experience, even worse than we experience, even though he's 100% human, he was 100% without sin because he was 100% God. Uh, our, our kids and journey kids are starting a little cri- a unit on, on the Advent and, and the, the Jesus coming uh, today uh, to, to, to earth. 
And it's so important for us to see that Jesus was born of a virgin. Remember how the high priest had to first sacrifice, make sacrifices for their own sin before they could go then into the most holy place, the holy of holies, and sacrifice for the sins of the people? Remember that? Well, we'll get into this more in Hebrews later on, but what if, what if the high priest that particular year didn't get full atonement for all of his sin? Well, he would go in and, and his sacrifice for the people wouldn't be accepted because he still had sin on his account. This means that the entire people would remain unforgiven. The high priest's sacrifice for the people would not work because the high priest still had sin on his account. I mean, let's face it, it's impossible for us to remember each and every sin to try to gain forgiveness of them. In addition, we'll see in Hebrews in a couple, 10, chapter 10 in a couple months, that the blood of bulls and goats was actually impotent. It wasn't able to remove sin to start with. But the entire system was set up by God to show the people just how much they needed not only a perfect sacrifice, because bulls and goats wouldn't cut it, but how much they needed a perfect high priest. Because anyone with their own sin couldn't sacrifice, offer sacrifices for the sins of others. We probably all cleaned a lot of dirty dishes on Thursday, right? Hopefully we did, right? Hopefully not still in the sink. Come on, guys. Uh, so hopefully we all cleaned a bunch of dishes on Thursday. Well, listen, does it work to clean a dirty dish with a really, really nasty, dirty rag? It's not very successful. It's not a, it's not a strategy for success, okay? If you use a really, really dirty rag to try to clean a really, really dirty plate, you're going to get a really, really dirty plate still. And this is what Hebrews is saying. Hebrews is saying that Jesus, what, what Jesus is and what he's done. Jesus is without sin because as our kids are learning today in the next couple of weeks, he was born of a virgin, not of a human father. The parasite of sin that entered into the human race with Adam and Eve was not passed on to Jesus. And unlike any of us and unlike any of the high priests that came before, Jesus entered into this world without sin. This is why Jesus is able to be the perfect lamb of God. He truly was spotless, truly was sinless, truly was uh, perfect. He totally satisfied the demands of the Father. And so Jesus had no sin of his own in order to gain forgiveness like all the other high priests. So Jesus was able to pass through into the Holy of Holies because he himself is holy. The sacrifice Jesus made worked because it wasn't for his own sins. It was for the sins of the world. Jesus is that perfectly clean rag, sponge, whatever you use to clean dirty dishes with. And he cleaned them. And he cleaned them well, even those pesky, like, really dirty pots that I just hate. You know, the caked on grease. Man, it's like, come on, how are you going to clean this? Just throw it in the dishwasher and just forget about it. He was able to clean the most vile of us because he was without sin. Man, what a thought. What a thought. Let's look at this last verse real quick, and we're going to hang up. And we're actually going to pass our offering plates after we finish this morning. But look at verse 16. Therefore, therefore, okay, remember, if you come to a therefore, you've got to know what it's therefore. Therefore, because Jesus is our perfect high priest, let's remember our context. Because he's our perfect high priest who has perfectly satisfied the wrath of God. Because Jesus himself is without sin, because you know, we are only going to be as holy as our high priest is holy, and Jesus is holy. Because of these things, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of 
grace. Everything thus far, we're going to stop here and we're going to pick up in the next little section in a minute. Everything thus far in Hebrews has been written to demonstrate that Jesus is the anointed one, to come to fulfill the entire old covenant, uh, all the shadows that pointed towards him. Hebrews has been telling the Jewish readers that they can actually have in Jesus what they have longed to have from the law. And this is the culmination of this urging, this begging in Hebrews. You see, the religiously minded individual uh, uh, focuses heavily on trying to get where God is. The entire law of Moses, which remember includes the Ten Commandments, was given by God to show just how impossible it is for people on their own to get where God is. But the religiously driven of us, we turn the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law into like step-by-step steps in order to, as means of getting closer to God. And we don't see the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law as what Paul described them in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul describes the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law as the ministry of death and condemnation. You see, the law is like 613 bony fingers pointing to the Jew and to any of us who are wanting to put ourselves underneath it in different ways, pointing condemnation upon us because we don't measure up. Instead of seeing that we don't measure up and then, and then turning to someone, Jesus, who does measure up, our religious mindset drives us to try to attempt to measure up on our own. And this is a perfect picture of the, of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Men who, who, who were so religiously uh, committed that, that, that everything they did was centered on trying to get closer to God. Their confidence was in themselves and their ability to do or not do the 613 laws. And Hebrews is systematically undoing this thinking by saying Christ and Christ alone is the one who, who gives us the ability to be where God is. The, the, these original readers, and maybe even some of us, let's just be honest, ha- have been hearing our entire lives, you know, perform, do better, try harder, gain forgiveness, create righteousness, work your way towards God. Here's the seven steps of, you know, working your way towards God or whatever that looks like. And now the gospel is being preached to these uh, Jewish readers and, and prayerfully even to us today that says, hey, listen, the performance is over. Jesus performed. The work is complete. Jesus completed it. Forgiveness, yeah, that's done too. Jesus has secured it. Righteousness, dude, it's yours. Come and take it. You are joined now to God forever if you only loose your grip on what you thought gave you God and hold fast to the one, the only one who actually gives you God. And that is Jesus. We've got to remember the context. This is clearly being written to unbelieving Jews. And the author is begging them, hey, come on, begin to believe in Jesus. Don't remain in unbelief. This is the end of chapter three. Don't remain in unbelief like your forefathers. Look at what happened to them. Look at what Jesus has now done. 
change your mind, believe, become believers. He's clearly writing to unbelievers. And I love this. I love the idea of an unbeliever still sold in sin, still a slave to sin, still alive to sin, approaching the throne of grace, God's very throne, which was a throne of judgment, but now has become a throne of grace. I love it how a sinner is able to approach the throne with confidence. I love that. I love that. It's the idea of boldness. How can a sinner, an unbeliever, approach the throne with confidence? Someone, Someone who's not yet in Christ. How can an unbeliever approach the throne with confidence? Please listen, because this is what our unbelieving family members, our unbelieving spouses, our unbelieving friends, our unbelieving neighbors, and the nations need to hear. The confidence is in the fact that someone else has gone before. Someone else without sin of their own has gone before us and satisfied the wrath of God against sin. Someone else has gone before us and actually entered into the heavenlies and sits at the right hand of the Father. The confidence is this, that someone else has gone before us to remove all of our sin from our account. Someone else has gone before us to do the work that we could never do on our own. The confidence of an unbeliever can be that someone has gone before us to receive us as their own, to give us their very righteousness when and only when we begin to trust in him. Think with me just how non-confident the religious Jews were in their sacrificial system, how non-confident they actually were. I mean, they were tasked with finding a spotless lamb, spotless bull, spotless goat. It had to be perfect. Well, What if, you know, after the hours and maybe days of searching for one of these, they finally found one, let's say a lamb that looks perfect on the outside. I mean, it's perfect, no spot, no wrinkle, no blemish, no crazy skin tag. I mean, it looks good, all right? They take it, they get it ready for the sacrifice, and they take it, and as soon as they cut it open, they see something that they couldn't see from the outside, this huge tumor. And now all of a sudden, man, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, it's not a tumor that came into my head. Um, the, 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 this crazy tumor is, is inside of it when they cut it open. What do you think is going through their mind? Man, my, my, my sacrifice is, is unacceptable. My sacrifice, I work so hard on this and, and have no confidence in this thing. I would submit to you, and I, again, this might be speculation, but I would submit to you that they were never 100% confident in their sacrifice or system. I would submit that the people were never 100% confident in the holiness of the high priest. I would submit that they were the high priests and the priests were never 100% confident in the condition of their sacrifices. So to them, the idea of drawing near to God with bold confidence, man, it was foreign, totally foreign. I mean, the best that they could really do was, well, this is the best that I have to offer. And Hebrews is saying, no, no, it's not the way it works. You cannot come to God based on your best efforts, your best doings. However, there is Jesus. There is Jesus who is the one who has gone before us. And so we, we unbelievers, we can now boldly come and actually draw near to God, the very place where the religiously minded want to be. But they tend to not want to be there by trusting in someone else. Usually the religiously minded want to be there by trusting in their own 
efforts. So what's the benefit? Why do we want, why, why this confidence of drawing near the throne? Well, look at this last sentence. So that. You hear the, the purpose behind this? this? This happens so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I love this. Receive. You hear that? Receive. Mercy and grace are not things that we earn nor deserve. They are things unbelievers receive when they begin to believe in Jesus. Mercy is defined, a good definition, I think. You you might have a better one. But mercy is defined by not getting something you deserve. Okay? Anybody ever been pulled over? All right? The rest of you are lying. Right? You've been pulled over. Anybody ever been pulled over, you know, and uh, I try to show it a little bit of leg, you know, so it'll give me a little, you know, but it doesn't really work. But you get pulled over, and instead of getting a ticket, somebody's going to walk out like, did he just say showed leg? Um, but you, 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 you should get a ticket. You definitely should get a ticket. I've got a story I won't share right now, but you definitely should get a ticket. Uh, but he gives you a warning. You, 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 you deserve the ticket, all right? But you get a warning. Larry, did anybody my size show you leg when you were, no. <laughs> um, but um, that's good. Uh, okay, let's bring it back. Um, yeah, it's an extra ticket. <laughs> Double that fine. <laughs> um, okay, so you get a ticket, and you, you deserve the ticket, but you get off. They, they, they give you a warning. Okay, that's an example of mercy. What did you deserve? You deserved the ticket, but you get something you did not deserve, the warning. Okay, the scripture is very clear that we deserve death because of our sin. We deserve death. In fact, as we talk about a lot of life journey, we are born physically alive, but yet spiritually dead. And we deserve to remain in that state of spiritual death until we physically die, to which the Bible says that we then perish. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have everlasting life. But because of Jesus, we who deserve to perish can actually approach the throne of grace and receive what? Mercy. We don't get something we deserve. We deserve to remain dead and perish. But we don't. There's mercy. Grace is similar, but different. So mercy is not getting something you deserve Mercy, and again, uh, excuse me, mercy is not getting something you deserve. Grace, and again, you might have a better definition, great is getting something that you don't deserve. So it's kind of the same, but opposite. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. We do not deserve forgiveness, but God graciously gives it to sinners who trust in Jesus. We do not deserve righteousness, but God graciously gives it to sinners who trust in Jesus. We don't deserve new hearts, but guess what? God graciously gives it. He cuts out the old dead heart and gives us a brand new heart when we start to trust in Jesus. We don't deserve to be in the very presence of God, but God graciously has opened up the very door of heaven by the death of his son so that all who would transfer their trust from themselves to Jesus would enter forever in the very presence and never, ever leave. We just sang that awesome old hymn that says, as long as Jesus stands in heaven, no tongue can bid us depart. Isn't that awesome? As long as Jesus stands in heaven, 
No tongue can tell us to leave. It's awesome. It's awesome. So we receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Well, what's this time of need? Well, in context, if you weren't here with us, with us last week, just go back a verse, back to verse, what was it, I think 14, that says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it's able to divide, it's able to actually cut to the very core of who we are and expose the real condition of our heart. Listen to me, can you think of a greater time of need when you are hearing the gospel and the gospel says you must trust in Jesus and nothing else and you are cut to the core and you realize that your trust is in something else besides Jesus and you see the true spiritual condition of your dead heart. Name a time of need greater than that. So what I hear Hebrews saying in context is that when you see that you have a truly dead heart and that you need Jesus in that hour of need, you can boldly come to the very throne of grace and receive mercy and grace in your hour of need. Listen, a lot of people have used this verse, including me, to suggest that believers are the ones that are being spoken to, are being addressed. Now, I could be wrong in this. You might want to tune me out. I don't know. But it just seems to me that in context, Hebrews is not specifically talking to believers But to unbelievers, remember, just read through it, chapter 3, chapter 4. He's saying, don't remain in your unbelief, but turn to Jesus. Enter this rest. We who have entered have entered into this rest. If you're not in Christ, you're not in this rest. I mean, he's been saying this over and over, over and over. And he's saying, now is the time for your forgiveness and your righteousness to come by holding on to Jesus. So think with me. Could this possibly be written towards a believer? And I could be wrong, but... But answer some of these questions in your own mind. As a believer, as someone who is in Christ, where do you now sit? Think with me. Where is your citizenship, according to Philippians? To whom are you actually joined? From whom are you actually birthed? In what kingdom have you been transferred into? See this? Context is everything. If we teach a believer, if we teach a saint that they can draw nearer to God than they already are, then what happened at their original new birth? Did the blood not work for them? If a believer can draw closer to God, then what's gone wrong? Where did Jesus fail? No, I really think that, that, that this is not talking about a believer drawing continuously closer and closer to God. I believe, I could be wrong, that as a believer, we have been lavished, Ephesians 1, with the full riches of God's grace. We are seated in the heavenlies. Listen, saints, you are near to God. You are close to God. In fact, Believe it or not, you are one with him. You are seated in the heavenlies. You are a citizen of heaven. You have been rescued, Colossians 1, from this domain of darkness and have been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. You are an alien of this world. This world is not your home. You're an ambassador here. You now live in heaven with God and will remain with him forever. We can claim this with boldness, with bold confidence because of the one who is without sin, who went before us to do a work on our behalf. Our journey marker this morning is just that that thought that we try to wrap everything up with before we get dismissed, is we enter by confidence 
in Jesus's completed work. We enter into this rest. We enter into the very throne of grace by confidence in his work. Why change now? Why change now? The only way for, for us to enter this promised rest of perfect forgiveness of all of our sins and complete righteousness is by being confident in what Jesus has done. We enter by confidence in him and his work. If you're not a believer in Jesus, man, listen, I urge you, I beg you to really weigh how confident are you in your own system? Whatever that system is, how confident really are you? Would you really play that card at the end of this life? I beg you, like Hebrews is begging these unbelieving Jews, I beg you to weigh where your confidence is and let's place it in the only place where we can be truly confident and that's the work of Jesus. You are now able to approach him and find mercy and grace. When you draw near to God, when you place your trust in Jesus, you will not be given eternal death that you deserve. You will find what you don't deserve. Forgiveness, righteousness, freedom, new life, and so much more. You must begin trusting in Jesus and nothing else. Now to the believers here this morning, listen. You entered into this relationship like we all did by placing our confidence in Jesus' work. Listen, don't change that. Why in the world would we change that now? Do we think that, that, that things have changed now that we're in? Now that we're in, do we think that we're, we're not held close to God by Jesus, but that we have to now put our good deeds on the line in order to be and remain close to him? You are raised from your spiritual death, Ephesians 2, and have been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Now and forever. Nothing will ever change that. Don't start off your Christian life with confidence in Jesus and then progress to placing confidence in yourself. It's not progression, that's digression. Continue in the same confidence that Jesus has perfectly cleaned you and he, has, he holds you perfectly close to God now and forever. Our band's gonna come up and we're gonna be dismissed with a couple of worship songs, including this song that we that we, we've been doing all, all, all month long, this Jesus, I'm resting, resting, just a favorite old hymn. But as the band comes up and we wrap this, this, this morning up, I, I want to leave you with this, this picture. Uh, my daughter Gwen, I already told you about her. Uh, she, like every other three-year-old probably out there, has a, a, a favorite blankie, okay? This blankie of hers is not yellow, but she calls it her yellow blankie. Uh, go figure. Well, she can't sleep without it. She can't, well, she doesn't nap anymore, but when she naps, she couldn't nap without it. I mean, you know the type, right? The, the blanket. Well, this blanket has come to, to, to signify, you know, uh, security to her. And she's got to have it everywhere she goes, except for, like, we draw the line, you're not taking it into the car. Uh, we're not taking it, you know, to the supermarket to drag it along the ground, you know. Well, the other day, uh, I was sitting in the bed, and she came running into our room, and she had her blanket. And I just, and I just thought, well, let me, let me try something. I said to her, I said, Gwen, I want you to come to me. Come let me hold you. And she started, you know, 
walking up towards me like she, like she always does. But I said, but, but leave your blanket there. Man, you would have thought that I was asking her to like, you know, cut her leg off. Leave your blanket there and come to me. Because I, I don't know if it's ego or, or something, I'm not sure, but, but I just have a thinking that I can actually provide her more security than some knotted up yarn. I think that my arms, she would rest in better than putting some yarn next to her face when she sleeps. I want to believe that as her dad, I provide a greater sense of security and confidence that she is okay than some blanket. She had a choice to make. It was really weird. She, she looked at me, these like puppy dog face, you know. She looked over at her blanket and, and you could see the dilemma going. She's familiar with this. This is what she holds all the time. But she knows that the embrace of her dad is better. It's last longer. It's more secure. It's warmer. It's real in comparison to this cold shadow that she drags around. So after a couple of minutes, going back and forth, I said, Gwen, just, just come. Just come. She finally went from that puppy dog kind of face of, I don't know, to this awesome, I'll never forget it. She just dropped the, the blanket and just with joy in her face that only a three-year-old can have, just comes running and jumps into my arms for me to hold her. The confidence that she had in me far surpassed this little blanket. Now listen, most of us, whether we're believers or unbelievers, we're holding on to something, some sort of shadow, some sort of of system of confidence. Maybe it's something as simple as, hey, I go to church on a regular basis. I'm confident that I'm going to get in into heaven because I go to church often. Or maybe it's something much more deep and personal like staying true to something that your mama or your your grandmama always wanted you to do. I don't know. I don't know. But here's the bottom line. We can never and will never gain anything. Righteousness, forgiveness, anything apart from Christ and Christ alone. And he freely gives it to us. Our hope must not be placed in our yellow blankies. Whatever that is for you. We all have something. Whatever that is for you. The the thing that you lean on, if I do this, or if I don't do that, then I'll be cleaner. Then I'll be closer to God. Our confidence must be in Jesus, in Jesus alone, and in Him we rest. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time of seeing from the very pen of Hebrews the truth that we have someone in your son who has gone before us. He's gone before us. He's paved the way by establishing our forgiveness and our righteousness. Jesus was crucified because of our transgressions and raised because of our justification, Romans. The resurrection happened because the death of Jesus worked. And so, Father, we boldly this morning place our confidence in one thing and one thing alone, the work of Jesus. 
Not in our efforts, not in our behavior, not in our actions, but in Jesus and Jesus alone. And Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who, are, who remain skeptical. They remain unbelievers. Father, show them, I pray this morning, the true condition of their heart. The true condition. Show them the, 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 the lack, the true lack of confidence they have in their own system of trying to create goodness, forgiveness, cleanness, closeness, whatever. And Father, I pray that in this moment you would draw them to your Son. That they would go from trusting in themselves to trusting in you. This is the message that our neighbors and the nations desperately need to hear. That Jesus is our righteousness. He is the one who makes us clean and close. So Father, as we sing, I pray these not just be songs, and, but that this be truly an opportunity for us to worship and declare our desire and our intent of resting in Jesus. Amen. Amen. What a great way to say it. In awe. It's like, wow. Wow, wow, wow. What has he done? He really has made us clean. He's really made us close. And we just say, wow, thank you. And we now walk in that reality. So as we go out this week, man, encourage, I encourage you to invite somebody, you know, to come next week. We're going to turn the page, go into chapter 5. Uh, but also in, start inviting people to our Christmas deals, all right? December 21st and December 24th. We'd love to have this, this entire cafeteria packed on the 24th and the firehouse packed on the 24th. So uh, we'd love for that to happen. Uh, as you know, in Journey Kids, we've been making these butterflies for cancer, cancer patients. And we've got a really big one because we've got a really dear uh, individual, that dear to our church, who has cancer. And we want to have anybody and everybody who wants to sign a little note. It's a really big butterfly on your way out. If you want to sign your name, you know, say, hey, thinking of you, however you want to make that happen. Rachel will be over at one of the tables in the welcome area to, to do that. So we love you guys. Have a great week. And we'll see you hopefully in groups this week. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.